Oh, g'day there, and welcome to the rewrap for Thursday. All the best bits from the Mike Hosking breakfast on News Talk ZB in a sillier package. I am NZB, and this morning um, we've got some reserve bank stuff, lending stuff, borrowing stuff to talk about, um, and more money stuff over in Australia. I'm sure we need to care about. Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, which I'm very passionate about, even though I haven't seen any of it yet. Don't tell me, don't tell me. And um, we'll finish up with some jury talk, because there was jury stuff going on today as well. But first, Silver Lake stuff, or rugby stuff, or when the two combine. The Silver Lake day today, as we say, the rugby union, I assume, ticks off a deal with an equity firm that has been a long time, probably too long in the making. In simple terms, Silver Lake gives rugby money in return for a stake. That stake allows them to sit on the board and take the game to the world in a way that apparently New Zealand rugby can't. New Zealand rugby get a heap of money which flows down to the grassroots and gives the game an injection that in theory grows it and safeguards its future. Sounds simple, eh? Started out with more stake, less money. Union signed off, the players didn't. The upgraded offer was more money, less stake. Players signed off, the unions got issues. Today, if those issues are settled, we'll have a deal. I was given a confidential report a couple of weeks ago that has since made it uh, to one other outlet that I've seen, but not widely circulated. It makes very interesting reading. It's a report... And they raise various issues. The issues they raise must have given the individual union serious pause for thought. One, no national organisation anywhere has ever done this. Two, does the union even have the legal right to be doing what they're doing? Three, the financial issues the unions talk of aren't as bad as made out. In other words, there is more money than portrayed. Four, Silver Lake aren't actually sports specialists. They invest in a couple of sports-based operations. Most of their money is in non-sport investment. Five, Silver Lake have no sports marketing specialisation. They hire people to do that. Six, Once it's done, it's never coming back. That's not all, but the overarching view, I think, is one that suggests this is a big deal and you'd better be pretty damn sure you think it's a great deal before you vote. And that's the other thing. This report alone, a singular piece of reportage that I assume is among many other reports that have needed to be read, is long, detailed, and as it points out, for people, most of whom have little or no expertise in the areas concerned. I mean, these regional union bosses are not experts. They're fans of rugby, basically. Are they equipped to make calls like this? For me, as a theory, Silver Lake seems a decent enough proposition. Read the report, though. You come up with a different conclusion. It's either a chance of a lifetime or a two muskets and a blanket sort of deal you'll live to regret. And it's only the national game, so (laughs) no pressure then. I don't think we really care about it that much anymore, though, do we? Why are people so worried about whether Silver Lake owns it or not? Simon Barnett, just... Sorry, Simon Barnett. Just yesterday, I heard him. Uh, I don't even think he's that fast about Christchurch getting the stadium anymore. Now that he's found out how much it's going to cost him personally as a rate player, rate power in Christchurch. Um, anyway, uh, maybe maybe Christchurch could, could uh, get a loan. I'll tell you what I like about back home here for a minute. What I like about Don Brash entering the cost of living debate is he, and he has, of course, this week, is he comes with knowledge and experience and he tells a completely different story to Adrian Orr. So you've got two Reserve Bank governors, right, with two different stories. So who's right is the question. Who's right? If Brash turns out to be more accurate in the long run, you can quite justifiably ask a couple of solid questions of Orr. Was he up for the job? Why couldn't he see what others did? And in defending his approach, which he currently is, how political has he become? So having him on the show last week, right, was a revelation to me of sorts. He was painting a picture which, to my eye, simply isn't true or real. In suggesting government spending a small beer in the inflationary picture he has to contain, it's absurd. The government has laden us down with a mountain of spending, a mountain of debt. Brash sees it or doesn't. Spending is inflationary, especially when it hasn't come with any boost in productivity or bottom line growth, which, of course, a lot of government spending doesn't. Or sees inflation having peaked. This is as bad as it gets, he thinks. I don't know many who would agree with him. 
He's peaking the cash rate now at 3.9%. That's worse than previously forecast, and that's one of the weaknesses of the or argument. So many of their forecasts, of course, turn out to be wrong. Brash sees the rate going higher than 3.9%. You've got to remember what Orr's trying to do is bring inflation under 3%, preferably at 2%, while at the same time, one, not sending us into a spiral of economic misery, which, by the way, spending data already shows we've hit, and two, having no control over aspects of the economy like oil, shipping, and China's COVID approach. And he's cutting inflation at a time of no growth, but also as we ask for more and more money because the price of everything is going up and up. I want Orr to be right because his theory seems the least painful, but you don't have to be an economic genius to see making this thing land softly is almost an impossibility now. And when people like Brash, and indeed Stephen Joyce, if you read him over the weekend, are saying something completely different, both are experts, you've got to wonder if Orr, having thrown so much printed help at the economy, is now in the tricky position of having to fix his own mess while pretending it's not that big a deal and also presumably not pointing the finger directly at Grant Robertson, who, if Brash and Joyce are right, is as donkey deep as the Reserve Bank Governor. Um, it's, it's, is it turning into Groundhog Day, this, this stuff? Mike criticising where we're at with printed money and, and inflation and all that sort of stuff. I... What I can't understand is is it doesn't really mean anything more to me now than it did when he first started talking about it about two years ago. Um, Even when he throws in a bit of Australian stuff into the the mix. We haven't got our numbers. It's 17 June, I keep asking. I think it's 17 June we get our GDP number. Uh, They're at 3.3 annualised, which is almost certainly going to beat us. It's part of the drain, brain drain equation, of course. This was a period of time, by the way, that did cover the Queensland, North New South Wales floods. A lot of people were deeply concerned about that and the economic effect. Also, the Omicron outbreak is in the middle of it all. Household spending, though, is up. Spending on discretionary goods and services. This goes to mood. Uh, spending on discretionary goods and services is up significantly, 4.3%. That's back above pre-pandemic levels, so they're out the other side, which is good. Transport's up 60%. That's got to do with the borders, obviously. Spending on recreation and culture, 4.8%. Restaurants, 5.3%. Cars, 13%. So even though confidence surveys will tell you everyone's miserable at the moment, both here and in Australia, the facts don't, in Australia anyway, don't appear to back it up. They seem to be getting on with life, which is good. Oh, that is encouraging, because yesterday, you know, on the back of all the interest rates and everything going up, it sounded like I was going to have less sort of disposable income to pay for things like my Netflix. And I don't want to have to give up my streamers, because um, then I wouldn't be able to watch uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, which I haven't watched yet, but I'm going to. Oh, very excited about it. But apparently all the racists are watching as well. I think I want to watch a program that racists are watching. Trending now on the Mike Hosking Breakfast. Now Star Wars, still a hit. Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney Plus is smashing records. Most watched premiere on its service in its history. This is what Disney's telling us. Do remember, though, of course, that Disney Plus is hardly celebrating its 50th anniversary. It's only been around for about a week and a half. Anyway, our old mate Moses Ingram, who was on the program last week, has been caught up in a storm from some of the so-called fans of the show. Since it premieres, she's received thousands upon thousands of racist messages, everything from racist slurs to telling her that her days are numbered. Is the world sick? Yes, it is. It's got so bad, uh, the star of the show, Ewan McGregor, has come out to defend her. It seems that some of the fan base from this influential fan base have decided to attack Moses Ingram online and send her the most horrendous racist DMs. And I heard some of them this morning and it just broke my heart. Moses is a brilliant actor. She's a brilliant woman. And she's absolutely amazing in this series. She brings so much to the series. She brings so much to the franchise. And it just sickened me to my stomach to hear 
that this had been happening. I just want to say, as the leading actor in the series, as the executive producer on the series, that we stand with Moses. We love Moses. And if you're sending her bullying messages, you're no Star Wars fan in my mind. I'm not sure that's the strongest line he could have ended with, but never the, you're no Star Wars fan in my mind. Anyway, three episodes in the series have been released. There's another three coming in the uh, coming week. I just don't get how um, people who aren't accepting of different races and cultures could ever watch something like Star Wars. Because, I mean, surely there can be no celebration of differences than, you know... The, the, the Star Wars Cantina, for example. You get a lot of different looking, sounding, talking people wandering around in there. Some of them aren't even people. Anyway, I'm confused. Uh, we're going to finish up. I'd like to see a, a, a jury of your peers in Star Wars. It's like a court case, defamation case. Uh, that was cause for conversation this morning as well in the wake of the uh, Johnny Depp Amber Heard decision. For someone who's just recently completed jury service, Mike, it bears reminding the jury are not body language experts, psychologists, lawyers or someone even professionals. I've just seen how regardless of the information presented, people have prejudices and this does not make an outcome easy or necessarily correct. It's an interesting thing. I think a lot about that every time there's sort of a, a, a jury type trial that m- lots of people become involved in. There's a tremendous weakness a tremendous weakness in the jury system, that to suggest that they were tried by a jury of their peers is farcical because they weren't uh, or anywhere close to it. To select 12, in this case it was seven because it was a, um, a liable trial, not a, you know, a criminal trial, uh, to, to suggest that you can round up 12 people at any given time and go, that's a good bunch of people, I've got full faith that they'll do the right thing or understand a trial. And of course, the longer it goes and the more complex it becomes, the less faith you have. It would have been really awesome if there had been a jury of their peers, like if they'd found seven seven sort of (laughs) slightly washed up, drug addled, super rich... Ex, Hollywood ex, losers, ex from movie stars. <laughs> <laughs> them on, on I'm with Johnny. Imagine looking up at the jury and seeing, you know, Gary Boosie and Nicolas Cage and Pamela Anderson. It'd be fun. I'm Glenn ZB. Uh, who would I? Who would be on my jury? Oh, that's a question. It'd be on yours. Uh, that was the rewrap. We'll be back with uh, more big decisions for you tomorrow. See you then.